From CBC Radio, this is Wiretap with Jonathan Goldstein. Today's show, There's No Business. Hello. Is this Frankie Reynolds? Who's this? Uh, my name is Jonathan Goldstein. Um, Jonathan, I'm sorry, who? Uh, Gold, Goldstein. Mr. Reynolds, I've been trying to get in touch with you for I can't tell you how long. It's been it's been impossible to track you down. It's a it's a big honor to 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 actually finally get you on the line. Why? Well, you know, to tell you the truth, I mean, I wasn't even sure that you were still alive. Uh, yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, you've been like like virtually unreachable since something like 1974. I I, I read that this was the year that you vowed never to tell another joke as long as you lived. Has it been that long? It's been like uh, about it's it's about thirty years. Mm-hmm. You know, you, your comedy, I, I think, was um, sort of ahead of its time. I, I think a lot of what you did was was misconstrued and and maybe underappreciated when when you were uh, when you were doing your comedy back in like the forties, the fifties, the sixties. My dad actually used to tell me about one routine you did. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was probably like at you know Grossinger's in, in the Catskills. This yeah, is yeah. back in the fifties where yeah. you would invite someone up onto stage, right. uh, and and you would ask to see their wallet. Yeah. They would take out their wallet, they would hand it to you, yeah. and then you would take their wallet and put it in your vest coat pocket, and then you'd tell them to get off stage. Yeah, like that was a big hit. And you'd refuse to get their wallet back. Absolutely. And, and, and my father tells me that in one case, this one guy you brought up on stage actually began to cry. Yeah, I, I seem to remember that. Do you remember that? You know, it was one of those routines where um, people expected me to do it after a while. You know, I, I'd, I'd call someone up, and anyone who'd seen the routine would be going, Oh, my God, he's not going to take the wallet, is he? And then, of course, I'd take the wallet. That's great. Yeah, it was funny then. I mean, so eventually, I'm imagining that um, that you know you'd 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 get it back to them or something after the show. I don't remember. Really? You you have no. Uh, well, no. it was pre-credit card days. You know, like you know what 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 kind of important things would you have in a wallet? Who cares? Yeah. You know, be a man. Yeah. You know, walk off the stage. Leave the wallet. Be free. Go. I do this thing where, you know, a woman was like, it would be her birthday. And mm-hmm. I'd say, how old are you, dear? And darling, whatever. And yeah. she'd say, um, I'm 75. I might say something like, you don't look a day over 74. And everybody would laugh. That's cute. You know, and, and it was light. Yeah. The other way I might approach it would be I'd have like one light on me. I'd be on the stage. It was a small stage. And uh, there was an area that was darkened out, and there'd be a coffin there. No one would see it. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I'd say to the woman, "How old are you? How old are you, dear?" And she'd say, "I'm 78." And I'd say, "Why'd you come up on the stage?" And she came up on the stage, and it's like all of a sudden, light would go up, right? Mm-hmm. You'd see the audience would see this coffin, and I'd say, "Would you like to lie down? See if it fits." <laughs> Still makes you laugh. So, so, so there's sort of two two sides. You know, there's a cuter side, and then there would be a more kind of morbid. Isn't that what we're all made up of? 
the other comedians? I mean, you you feel about your work because I mean, you you were performing at a time when, you know, I mean, Hen- there was Henny Youngman who was uh, doing the uh, the circuit. I guess there was uh, Don Rickles. Uh, Henny Youngman used to stand with a violin. That's right. And he'd say something like, uh, two best friends were walking down a garden path, and one friend looked at the other and said, look at the dead bird. And the friend would look up in the air and go, where? And he'd go, da 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 So do you think, like, that's funny? Um, not, I guess not. Not really. Now, Frankie Reynolds' version of that joke would be, invite a woman up on the stage. Mm-hmm. Ask her to open up her purse. Mm-hmm. Take a dead bird and throw it in her purse. That's comedy. Tell me about the telephone routine. Well, the telephone routine, this is how it works. Mm-hmm. I'd have a phone on stage. Yeah. And um, I'd sit down next to the phone, and I'd, I'd get a very serious look on my face. And the audience would actually get quite quiet. And I'd start dialing the numbers, and I would actually, what I would do is I would, I would dial up friends' wives, and uh, I'd have a speaker attached so people in the audience could hear what was going on. Mm-hmm. And... Um, yeah, you know, let's say it was like Margaret. I go, hey, Margaret, it's Frankie. Okay, Frankie, what are you doing? Where? Yeah, you know, we're. And then I'm up in the Catskills, and I, I I heard the terrible news. She go, well, what terrible news? I go, what do you mean, what terrible news? That that Arthur died. Arthur died. Or Arthur being her, her husband. husband. Her husband. And I would just like you know go on and on and on and on and on and you know, make her believe that her husband was dead. But but. He wasn't. He wasn't dead. No, no, he wasn't dead. That was just a route. That was shtick. That was routine. That was just a routine. Yeah. So so at a certain point in the con, I mean, how long would this go on before you would actually tell them that that you were just joking? Oh, I you know I let it go on for about a good five six minutes. You know, that can be an excruciatingly long time, especially if you're, if you're thinking that your husband's dead. Right. And usually these wives are very forgiving, like, say, oh, I'm going to kill you next time I see you, or, oh, my God, oh, my, you know, but, you know, no one really held it against me. What, um, what, what made you think that, that that was funny? I mean, I find it incredibly I- I- absurd and interesting, but, I mean, also, just... Kind of cruel, I guess. Yeah. You know, Jonathan, right? Yeah. Um, comics in general aren't happy people. I mean, they're angry. Mm-hmm. And um, some of them are quite hostile. Uh, some have been known to beat their wives. Uh, and some female uh, comics have been known to beat their husbands. Have tantrums, go into rages. Uh, nasty, nasty group of people. A lot of boozing. Uh, it's like, okay, so there's certainly drug abuse. When you're in a place like Vegas, you can't help it, right? Mm-hmm. It comes to your home. Yeah. These comics would go out on stage, and people think they were barrel laughs, and, you know, I, 
I get out on stage and um, I just really let it out. Your, your, you mean your, your, your hostility? All my hostilities, get it out. You know, I got rid of my demons on stage. You know, I take a dead bird or take a guy's wallet. I was a happy guy. Yeah, I'd like walk off stage and I felt free. You've just about completely removed yourself from the public eye. No comeback, no word, no, um, no nothing. Yeah, that sounds about right. I dedicated a part of my life to what I thought was something funny, mm. worthwhile. And uh, when it dried up, that was it, it was over. Do, 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 I mean, do you miss the laughter? No. Because they say comedians, you know, they... They, uh, they they become addicted to the laughs. Right, the gift of laughter. Yeah. Yeah. Now, listen, I'm 74 years old. Uh, I've got good blood pressure. And I can still tan. What more can a guy want? rather improbably, as a child, I made it. I was a child star. I was a completely successful child star. For a while, anyhow. When I was nine years old, for about a half a season, I played the role of someone's hallucination on Stop Kicking My Chair, a 1970 sitcom about a short-tempered widower raising five high-spirited children all by himself. It came about that the producers of the show wanted to boost ratings by having some more psychedelic episodes. Remember, this was the 70s. And so a plot was assembled in which Nicholas, the 19-year-old son on the show, fell in with the wrong crowd. And as a result, he popped LSD, which was a popular drug in the news at the time. The drug causes Nicholas to hallucinate. And his hallucination takes the form of a 9-year-old boy named Eric. And that was my role. I was Eric. In our first scene together, I told Nicholas that I only existed as a part of his delirium, and that without him and the LSD, I would simply cease to be. I was a very straight-talking, precocious hallucination. I explained that I was nothing more than the misfiring of his synapses, that in fact, what I really was, was a fire hydrant, that in his loneliness and yearning, he had turned a fire hydrant into the image of a little boy. Objectively, I am not real, Nicholas. My lines read. But I can come pretty close to the real thing, as long as you continue to swallow consistent quantities of acid. As long as you continue to turn on, I will continue to be your bosom buddy. I would hug Nicholas, and Nicholas would hug me back, tears streaming down his cheeks. Then the camera would pull back into a crane shot, and there would be Nicholas, squeezing the hell out of a fire hydrant. The sad trombone would play, and the scene would fade into a commercial.
the show's producers were absolutely bowled over by my performance on the show. And what was initially slated as a one-show hallucination was extended into five more episodes. As Nicholas continued to get high and hallucinate, so too continued my career as a child star. And it was a great time. Us Magazine came down to the set of the show to profile me, and in the article, because of my continual look of exasperated sincerity, I was referred to as a mini Dick Van Patten. Suddenly, I was a hot commodity, even making an appearance on The Mike Douglas Show, where Charo serenaded me with the song, Thank God for Little Boys. When the LSD plotline began to wear thin, the producers came up with an idea that would allow me to continue on as a show regular. The idea was to have Nicholas wish me into existence as a real-life flesh-and-blood little boy. It'll be a modern-day version of Pinocchio, said the producers. The scene called for me to roll around on the ground, pulling out my hair and begging to exist. I was told by my agent and various handlers that a heart-wrenching performance like this would virtually guarantee me an Emmy Award nomination. When the day came to shoot, the director called action, and I just went for it. Rolling around, screaming, pleading, howling. I even did this move where I wrapped my little arms around myself and made a high-pitched whistling sound. Despite all of this, the director remained unmoved. He yelled cut and walked over to me. Squatting on the ground beside me, he said that in order for the scene to work, I had to cry. What seems to work for some of the kids I've worked with is thinking about sad things. Do you have a dog that was hit by a car? he asked. I shook my head no. I never owned a pet. Then he told me to imagine myself falling off a bicycle. But rather than making me cry, it made me wince. Look, he said, growing impatient. Just make with the water work so we can get this over with. I sat on the ground imagining all kinds of sad and terrible things. I imagined my father kicking me in the stomach. I imagined my French teacher, Madame LeBaire, slapping me in the mouth. I imagined being force-fed hard-boiled eggs with a clothespin clamped on my nose. Still, nothing came. Finally, I shut my eyes as tight as I could and concentrated. I was just going to have to will the tears out of my eye sockets. After about five minutes, everyone, including myself, knew it was no use. Then, the actor who played the dad came over and told the producers that his real-life son could cry like nobody's business. Just put a bowl of spinach salad in front of that kid and he's a blubbering mess, he said. The producers mulled over the suggestion. Finally, one of them said, Hallucinations can change. One day, they look like one kid and the next... They look like a different kid altogether. That's the nature of a hallucination. The other producers nodded their heads in agreement, and very soon afterwards, I was escorted from the set. At home that night, I lay in bed, unable to sleep. I just lay there, thinking about what the years ahead would yield. There would be no more fruit baskets with chocolate bars in my trailer. No more massages after a long day of shooting. There would be no satin bathrobes or free movie passes, and no one calling me absolutely brilliant. When I felt the tears begin to well up inside me, I choked them back. I wouldn't give them the satisfaction. 
you're, you're an actor. Yes. And and I'm imagining like you're called upon quite often to to cry for various reasons. Yes. In your roles. Mm-hmm. And I, I've always wondered like how how does someone how does someone like cry on demand? How can you how can you do that? Well, different actors do different things to um, try to get there. Mm-hmm. There's things called sense memory, you know, bar uh, body memory. Your body reacts a certain way every time you cry. Your nasal, uh, you know, you, your nose runs so that part is opened up. If you can kind of open that up, that helps. There's little tricks and tips. Um, and you can think of the saddest things in your life, but that's self-indulgence really i think you have to play the scene mm-hmm. and if the scene calls for it then uh the character should be struggling so much that it will come naturally anyway and and i mean it, in, in all ways you're able to make the tears come like there's never there's never a moment where it's sort of like the the, the well just runs dry well if, if the well runs dry you can't force it because then you're lying <laughs> This, this sounds, I guess, sort of banal, but like, what is your success rate, like, for for crying on demand? Like, how how often does it does it does it pan out? Well, if I'm really connected to the line of the story and what the character is fighting for, then I can I can usually get there. It'll usually happen anyway. And is it exhausting? Yeah, crying is exhausting. Would you be able to? Sure. You could do it right now? Yeah. Yeah. If I... see you right now no we're on the telephone are are you really crying yes with you have tears yeah well how do you feel i feel sad you know brendan i haven't cried in Easily over 15 years. Well, you should give it a shot. It's, uh, it's okay to cry. It's all right to cry. Crying takes the sad out of you. It's all right to cry. It might make you feel better. Um, I, I, you know, I feel sort of all kind of, um, all clogged up. Huh? You don't do it alone even? I don't, and I think, and and uh, it's it's a completely irrational fear, of course. But I think somewhere deep down inside, I feel like if I were to start, I'm afraid that I just wouldn't be able to stop. Maybe you need to do it with someone. Brendan, you want to stay on the phone with me? 
Sure. I have something in mind. Okay. I think if I think about this thing with uh, with enough intensity, I think it, it could help me to cry. Okay. All right. I'm gonna I'm gonna just I'm gonna turn up some music to uh, to mask the sound. Okay. Okay. All right. Voices you heard in part one of Wiretap were Bert Kovit and Brendan Murphy. Stay tuned for part two of Wiretap after this break. There's no business like show. 